Hello, welcome again to this online meeting of Stapleford Baptist Church. It's great that you can join us online this morning. I'd love to be able to see you face-to-face uh, -face, rather than just be staring at a camera, but uh, my hope is that I will be able to see at least some of you next week because next week we hope to be uh, having services actually in the building itself. So it would be great if you can join us then uh, and worship God uh, together. We won't be able to sing out loud. Okay, that's one restriction. So you'll have to hum behind a face mask. Um, but never mind, it would be great to see each other uh, and it will be great to feel that sense of fellowship as we come together in the name of our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why we're gathered even online this morning to worship the Lord Jesus. So let's just pray and ask God to be with us during this time together. Father, we thank and praise you for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, our wonderful King. And we pray that as we meet together, we might learn more about him this morning. Pray that we may have a deeper relationship with him because of our gathering together. We're sad that we can't meet physically together, so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to wherever we are this morning and um, draw us to the Saviour and a sense of others drawing around our Saviour too, that sense of community that the church is and which we enjoy so much. We pray that you would help us as we sing at home, as we uh, read your word together, as we listen to what you've got to say. We pray that you would really raise our souls by the power of your spirit working through us so that we may be full of joy and peace in God. We thank you for all you do for us and we pray that you would be with each one of us now, this morning and in the days to come. And we pray that our souls might be full of thanks to you in whatever circumstances we are, even though some of them are very tough. So as we sing in, uh, in a moment or two, really send your spirit to be with us, to invigorate us, to help us to l listen to the words and to really enjoy having time with you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, we're going to start by singing a couple of songs um, and then uh, we'll have a online uh, talk from somebody, I'm not sure who it is actually, that'll be a surprise to me when I watch this, uh, that'll be great. Uh, then a little later, uh, Eunice is going to come and uh, read uh, God's word to us and pray, and then I'll be coming back a little later on to speak to you from uh, part of John's first chapter of his gospel. But until then, please enjoy the service. Right. Good morning. Now we're going to read from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting at verse 29. You might like to find it in your Bible. Um, and if you have a church Bible, it's good news, isn't it? Because you'll be able to bring it back soon. Um, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me, has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and said, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We've found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw under the fig tree, saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that we can come into your presence at any time, in any place. Thank you that you are with us right now in our homes or wherever we are. You see us, know us, and want to interact with us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has dealt with the problem of sin. Forgive us for our wrongdoing, our selfishness, and not always having you at the center of our lives. Father, particularly today, we pray for our Queen. We thank you for her and pray for her as she grieves. May she find comfort in you and loving support from family and friends. We would pray this for all who are mourning at this time. But we thank you too for our joy and our laughter. As we look at this true story from the Bible, please speak to us in our hearts and souls. May we have a real desire to get to know you more. Thank you for your incredible love for us. May your name be glorified in all we do, say or think. Amen.
Well, hello. It's uh, great to be here um, in the building, bringing this uh, message from God's Word to you. Uh, next week, uh, I hope some of you at least will be able to join me in the building uh, and uh, sing in our hearts, if not verbally, because uh, that's prevented at the moment, but to join in singing, praying, uh, and listening to God's Word in the building. If you can't come, that's okay. Uh, we know that some of you are still uh, self-isolating. Uh, some of you uh, are still concerned about uh, whether the level of protection you have from COVID. That's fine. Uh, we hope that you'll be able to come back to the building soon. Okay, well, let's pick up this story that uh, Eunice uh, read to us a moment or two ago. Somewhere in the Jordan Valley, on the East Bank, there's a guy called John, and he's dipping people into the river. He's been hawking a message that's got them worrying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You won't find that in the reading we looked at this morning. You can actually find that in Matthew's account in the New Testament of the Bible. But uh, that's what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven's near. Now, at this point, I really wish you were in the building and I could see your faces because I'm guessing that at least one of you will find John's statement rather odd. I mean, heaven's a great place, isn't it? Why should that be worrying? Because evidently it was to the people that John spoke to. Or maybe there's some understandable nervousness. After all, none of us have actually met someone who's come back from a day trip to heaven, have we? Um, to report what it's like there. Uh, but why should anyone need to repent? Because heaven's just around the corner. Wouldn't it be a bit more logical if John had said, pack up what you're doing, get your harps out, because the kingdom of heaven is near? Yet instead of raising levels of excitement and anticipation, it seems that many of John's listeners were in some kind of panic. How's that? Well, the people getting, them, getting themselves ready to be dipped by John in the river had heard his message as some kind of wake-up call, which is what John had intended it to be. In effect, John's message is, heaven's just around the corner, and you aren't ready for it, not one bit. Many of the people listening to John had come to realize that there was a fundamental incompatibility between their, their lives and heaven. Now, during this rage of COVID we've had to put up with over the last year, we've all become familiar with the restrictions uh, if you've got a temperature, a cough, or a loss of taste. No entry to COVID-infected suspects uh, we might find for a building. Um, we've become familiar with the need for self-isolation when we've been near someone who's been diagnosed as COVID positive. No access to COVID contacts is permitted in many places. But if you think that the travel, isolation and quarantine restrictions imposed as a result of COVID in the last 12 months have been troublesome, then the entry disqualifications to heaven are much tougher, much, much tougher. For God has in effect erected a sign outside heaven which says, keep out, 
you're not worthy. And what's more, he's equipped it with an army of angels to keep that enforced. It says, that sign says, no evil here, not even the tiniest bit. No carriers of evil, no one who's ever tried evil, and there are no exceptions. And the people listening to John, those understanding his message, are getting a whole body wash in the River Jordan. Of course, in the hot climate of Israel, that might have been quite a nice thing to do, but that's not, wasn't, that wasn't why they were doing it. It was a public declaration that their way of living, the things they'd done, the things they'd thought, and the things they'd not done, and the things that they'd not thought, had made them dirty in God's eyes. And now that they'd come to a realisation of their dreadful situation, their failure to live in the way that God wanted them to do, they were confessing those failures to God. By getting washed in the River Jordan, they wanted to apologise to God and symbolically get all their dirt washed away. They realised that they'd no hope of being accepted into the heaven that John was talking about as coming very soon, so they'd better do something about it. John's message is clear. Their only hope of getting into heaven was to repent to God of all the wrong that they'd done. All the wrong that they'd thought. All the wrong that they'd said. All the things that they hadn't thought and hadn't said and hadn't done. And the message is still the same today. Your only hope of getting into heaven is to repent. My only hope of getting into heaven is to repent to God for all the wrong that we've done, that we thought, that we've said, that we've not thought, we've not said, and not done, and to trust that he'll forgive us. I don't know whether you've ever watched that program on the TV called The Repair Shop. I know it's very popular, and I guess many of you have watched it. Well, in it, you can watch some highly skilled craftsmen and women restoring some horribly uh, trashed heirloom that belongs to well, quite an ordinary person. And when it's been restored to its former glory, then the owner is invited back to receive the transformed object. If you've watched the pro program, then you'll have seen relatives receiving back some treasured possession that came from their mother or grandfather or whatever, at someone who died a long time ago. There'll have been much emotion. There'll have been gasps and tears as the object allows them to remember with great affection some happy time in the past when their relative was still alive. It's poignant. Happiness about remembering a past, that sadly can't be repeated. The owner feels both happy and sad at the same time, and so do we a bit watching them. It's great TV. But then, very often, the owner of the object will go on to say something like, I just know my grandma will be looking down from heaven and smiling just like she always did when I played with this doll when I was a toddler or something similar. But I wonder, where on earth does this idea come from? Lots of people in the program say it, or something similar. But on what basis? And why do none of the participants in the program ever say, I just know my uncle will be looking up from hell and smiling, just like he did when we, he wound this toy up for me when I was a kid? It seems that many, many people have got their idea of heaven 
what heaven's like from their imaginations or from someone else's imagination. It seems that it's popular to believe that everyone who's reasonably nice will end up in heaven from where they'll look down benignly on our world. Yet the Bible tells us about a very different type of heaven. Because no one has ever gone on a day trip to heaven and brought back the video, shouldn't our understanding of what heaven is like take a great deal of notice of what the Bible tells us? After all, the Bible is centered on Jesus who came from heaven to tell people about it. And when we do take note of what the Bible says, we'll discover that only perfect people can go to heaven, perfect in every respect. Perfection is demanded from birth to death on earth in what you and I do and don't do, in what you and I say and don't say, and in what you and I think and don't think. No evil, not the slightest trace is permitted, no exceptions. And it tells us that anyone who does get there will have their attention completely taken up in worshipping Jesus Christ. They won't be looking down at their relatives on earth, they'll be looking up at the king that they follow. That's why John says the kingdom of heaven is near. It's got a king in its centre, Jesus himself, who returned from earth to heaven. Now at this point, you may be wondering how it's possible for anyone ever to get to heaven. After all, no one is ever perfect in every respect and for always, are they? And even if, like those people way back in John's day, you and I were to repent to God and, and even go and have a full body wash in a river, it wouldn't remove our mistakes and failings from history, would it? Well, I suppose that the writer of this part of the Bible anticipated this concern because he supplies an answer in the following verses that Eunice read for us a few minutes ago. By the way, uh, the writer is another person called John, but not the same John as we've just been talking about. So, this writer, this other John, now gives us brief pictures of the next three days. They each begin the next day. If you've got a Bible handy, you'll see this if you look at the first words of verse 29, 35, and 45. The description of each day is just six, seven, or nine verses long. I guess that John, the writer, is hugely compressing each day's events and only recounting the key sentences that were spoken. So we'll need to look very carefully at the text to see what's going on. So let's look at the next three days. The next three days. And the first day one is this. John meets Jesus. So if you look in verses 29 to 34, the next day Jesus arrives and is baptised, dipped in the river. And he ups the ante in effect. He's got nothing to repent of. He's the Holy Son of God. You'll see that in verse 34. But his action adds an extra dimension. He's baptised by the Holy Spirit. He's immersed by the Spirit. The same word is used for dipping in the river as being covered by the Spirit. In effect, Jesus is saying, being sorry about your failures is not enough. You need to have a new life. 
you need to have a spiritual life from heaven. You need to be made completely clean from the inside outwards. You need to have your old, tarnished and contaminated life replaced by a perfectly holy life. Only then will you be ready for heaven. But how can that come about? Well, in verse 29, we have John's second declaration. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his first declaration some days earlier, it was in Matthew's account, John has said to anyone who's listened, heaven's just around the corner, but you're not ready for it because you're tainted by sin. You're rotten at the core. And so now he says to Jesus and declares, and now he points to Jesus and he declares, but look, here is God's remedy. Someone who'll bear your death sentence instead of you. Great news. Just like those ancient sacrificial lambs which were killed uh, to, uh, in effect, take away people's wrongs, this person, this Jesus, is going to take away your rottenness, your sin, and is going to make you clean and ready for heaven. And God himself gives his own seal of approval to this by sending the Holy Spirit from heaven to certify that Jesus is indeed pure and holy and without any sin. I expect many of you have heard of hormone replacement therapy. Well, here is John describing spiritual replacement therapy. The very center of your being, or my being, can be replaced by the perfect spiritual life of Christ. Or, describe, or to describe it another way, every spiritually cancerous cell can be replaced by a spiritually healthy cell from God. Well, that's the first next day. What about the second next day? In the second next day, verses 35 to 42, Simon meets Jesus. This next day, number two, uh, two of John's followers come to realize something very important about Jesus. He's the long-promised Messiah. Now, the Messiah was a title given to a person who'd been promised a long time ago uh, in the past and who one day would appear and would become a good king. He'd be a king a bit like King David, who was the very best king that their country had ever had. But the Messiah was going to be much better than David. He was going to purify the nation, get rid of the evil occupiers, and Israel would become a great nation again, and he would treat his people very well. He would be the perfect king. So these two guys decide to find out more about Jesus. They spend most of the day with Jesus and become Jesus' followers. It's now late in the afternoon, but they're so excited about what they've discovered, they're so excited about meeting Jesus, that while they're still light, they rush off, and one of them grabs his brother, a guy called Simon. And he too becomes a follower of Christ. You'll see that in verse 42 if you've got a Bible handy. What Jesus says to Simon is, on the face of it, rather strange. Here's Simon arriving to wherever Jesus is. And the first thing that Jesus says to him is, I know who you are. And from now on, you're going to be called by a different name, Peter. Well, it's pretty strange that Simon should be renamed on his first meeting by someone he doesn't really know at all. But it's even stranger, the name that he's given. 
because it means like a rock. Yet, if you were to get hold of a Bible and read through it about this guy, Simon, who'd be renamed Peter, you see that for several years, Peter was anything but a rock. He was unreliable, he was a doubter, he was really an enthusiastic dunce a lot of the time, and frankly, he was a deserter. But once again, our writer has a subtext in mind here. He wants us to know that Jesus sees us not just as we are, but as we will be. Jesus sees Simon's long-term future and knows that Simon, renamed Peter, will become very reliable and trustworthy, someone who will eventually be martyred for his belief. Not even giving up his trust in Jesus when tortured and killed by Jesus' enemies. The writer who so briefly summarised the events of that day long ago wants us to understand that Jesus knows who we are too and he knows our futures and he knows how we'll behave and he knows the sort of person that you and I will become. Well, let's move on to the third next day. You'll see that in verses 43 to 44. Nathaniel meets Jesus. Nathaniel meets Jesus. The next day, Jesus finds Philip, a guy called Philip, and asks him to become a follower. Evidently, Philip is pretty excited about this because he rushes off to find Nathaniel in verse 45. But Nathaniel takes uh, a great deal of pride in not falling for the hype about Jesus. Jesus may be the celebrity of the moment, with more Twitter followers than David, Donald Trump, Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga combined, uh, but Nathaniel is not so easily convinced. After all, Jesus hails from the dirt poor village of Nazareth. And in the opinion of Nathaniel and his social group, no one good ever came from there. But Philip's not to be put off by Nathaniel the grumpy. Don't just mope there, says Philip. Come and see for yourself. You know, not much has changed from that day 2,000 odd years ago. Jesus still doesn't have a high social standing. Church is seen by seven, about 95% of the population of the UK as irrelevant or balmy or positively repressive. Many, maybe most people may think, even if they don't say it out loud, can anything good come from the church? Or why would anyone want to follow Jesus? Or why take any notice of a legend that's long past its sell-by date? Given the number of people in our society who think that way, maybe that's your viewpoint too. But the answer to these questions is the same as Philip gave that long time ago. Come and see. It's been said that no single person in the history of the world has had so much impact on the world, on our culture, on us as Jesus, who came from this dirt-poor village of Nazareth. Yet many, maybe you as well, have never even thought of finding out more about him. And Nathaniel would say to you, uh, Philip would say to you, come and see. Well, when Nathaniel was persuaded uh, to come to Jesus, he got a big surprise. Jesus immediately demonstrated 
to Nathaniel that he knew him to his core. You'll see that in verses 47 and 48. And if you come and meet Jesus, you'll realize that he knows you in every respect. The good, the bad, and the very ugly. You'll come to realize that Jesus knows you much better than you know yourself. Jesus saw straight past Nathaniel's scornful and crabby character. It seems like it was a shell that Nathaniel used to cover up his failed ambitions or his lack of fulfillment. But Jesus knew the real person underneath. Someone who wanted what's good, but has ended up living in some kind of blind alley. Jesus knew Nathaniel deeply. Jesus saw Nathaniel when he was in the shade of the fig tree, a place where Nathaniel had evidently been hiding. Uh, probably not hiding because he'd done something wrong, but fig trees with their big leaves were shady places where you couldn't easily be seen. But probably he was hiding there because he didn't want to meet Jesus. He didn't want to come out into the open. So when Jesus says what he says, he doesn't mean, I saw you geographically in a certain place under the fig tree. He also means, I saw the place where your heart is, where the real you is. It's quite evident from this short account in verses 45 to 49 that Nathaniel didn't want to meet Jesus, and I can't help wondering why. Nathaniel says to Philip in verse 46, it's because he thinks Jesus is worthless. But that's not really a credible explanation for not meeting Jesus. Here is the person, Jesus, who's been causing a great stir. John, to whom crowds have been flocking, has declared him to be the sacrifice for the wrongs done by those who repent. John has said that he's the way to ensure you get to heaven. Some other followers of Jesus have declared him to be the promised Messiah. His mate Philip has told Nathaniel face to face that John is the one promised by all sorts of prophets in the past. You can see that in verse 45. Jesus is the man of the moment and he's close by. No, it's really unbelievable that Jesus' poor home was the reason that Nathaniel didn't want to meet Jesus. He'd have wanted to meet Jesus even just to confirm to himself that Jesus really was an imposter. No, I'm sure there's another reason why Nathaniel didn't want to meet Jesus. I'm pretty sure Nathaniel had a sneaking suspicion that meeting Jesus would be a highly uncomfortable event. At the back of the mind, I'm guessing that he knew it would require him to place all of his own darkness of character in front of God's holy spotlight. And the reason that I'm pretty sure of this isn't because I can read it in the scriptures, <coughs> because I know that in my own heart and every Christian you can speak to will know, tell you the same that when we come to Jesus it's an uncomfortable thing to do because his light his purity shines on our sin in effect in verse 48 Jesus says to Nathaniel I can see your goodness the character you want to be and in verse 48 Jesus says before you even approached me, I saw the reluctance you had, the reasons you gave for keeping your distance from me. And the same is true about you and me. Jesus knows exactly the reasons we give ourselves for not coming to meet him, for not talking to him, for not being honest with him. But none of that makes any difference to him. He's never unwilling to receive us. 
nor does it make him blind to the sort of people you really are, the sort of person I really am. So often the tragedy of your life and mine is that we steer away from Jesus because we don't want him to investigate the corners of our hearts too closely. And in so doing, we steer away from the only person who could enable us to live now as the person we're supposed to be and to have an entry into the heaven that is just around the corner. We need to follow in Nathaniel's example. It's in verse 49. You, Jesus, are the Son of God. You are the King. He's admitting to Jesus, and just as much, just as important maybe, he's admitting to himself that because Jesus knew him completely, and because Jesus is perfectly good in every way, therefore Jesus does know what's best for him. In the same way, we have to admit to Jesus and to ourselves that because he knows us completely and because he's perfectly good in every way, therefore he knows what's best for us. And because he knows what's best for us, we'll have to accept that he is the person we wish to put first in our lives, even before ourselves. First, Jesus says that Nathaniel is a true Israelite. Now it is Nathaniel who is willing to confess that Jesus is the king of Israel, his king. If you and I are prepared to leave off hiding from Jesus and are prepared to come to him, then we must be prepared, prepared to place him at the very center of our lives and for him to rule us for our own good. Then, like Nathaniel, we can be assured that we will see heaven open with Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man at its center as it says in verse 51. Well, those are the three next days that are covered by the writer John in the last part of chapter one of his story. What about today? Today. It's easy now, isn't it? You're sitting at home, um, you're watching it on your TV or your smartphone or your laptop. It's easy to turn it off now and let the service fade away. But Jesus doesn't fade away when you're not thinking about him. He still sees us when we're under a fig tree, like Nathaniel, whether we're watching repair shop or whether we're busily trying to keep our lives in order. And all the while, he still knows us completely, past, present, and future. All that's good, all the bad that will keep us out of heaven forever. Only when we know him, when we repent of our failures, when we repent of living our lives at a distance from him, only when we come to Jesus, humbly asking him to forgive us and to redirect our lives into a life with him at the centre, only then can we have a hope of fulfilling... Uh, hope. Start again. Only then can we have a hope of a fulfilling life here on earth and a life eternally in heaven with him. Don't be a Nathaniel, finding excuses not to come to Jesus. Today, you have the opportunity because Jesus is passing close by. Who knows whether that will be true tomorrow. Well, that's what I believe God would bring me, bring to you from this passage in uh, the story that John writes down. But I just want to have a little advert at the end here. Heaven at Stapleford Baptist Church, SBC.
If you've been in touch with the church over the past months, you'll know that my colleague, John, has been explaining some of the things the Bible has got to say about heaven. And if you'd like to know more about heaven, uh, then you might like to know that John will giving us, be giving us his final expose uh, this afternoon. Why not join us on Zoom at 4.30? And there'll be a question and answer session a, a few weeks later at 6 o'clock on Sunday, May the 9th, when you can get your questions about heaven sorted out. If you want to join either or both, then please give the number a call that will appear at the end of this morning's uh, broadcast. I was asked to, uh, for those of you in life groups, and the church has life groups, and uh, if you don't, aren't a member of a life group already, it would be great if you joined a life group, um, then uh, I was asked to give you two questions to mull over, and you can discuss them at the life group coming up in the, this week coming. So here's the first question. If, like Nathaniel and Simon, uh, Jesus sees you as you are, as you will be, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and still wants you to follow him, then what difference ought this knowledge to make? What difference does this knowledge make in helping you to live your life today, tomorrow, this week? And the second question is, both Philip, uh, sorry, get his line wrapped, Simon and Nathaniel became worshippers of Jesus. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, how are you going to worship him today, tomorrow, this week? Two questions to mull over and to maybe talk about uh, when you meet in life groups this week. Now we're going to sing our final song, and after that a prayer will come up on screen, which I invite you to read out loud wherever you are as uh, your prayer at the end of this service. Thank you for joining us. I hope to see you next week here in the building or uh, online, whichever is best for you. Uh, and until then, may God be with you.